Hello, and welcome to Wands and Fronds, the weekly podcast where we cover magic, herbalism, and more. I'm Shannon. And I'm Nick. And we're your co-hosts. So today, we're going to be journeying deep into the woods uh, a bit, where I'm going to be talking about lamb's ears, or Stachys lanata. And I will be digging into my own backyard, so to speak, and experiences growing up in Texas to talk a little bit about foraging and talk about some other mysterious forest dwellers, the druids. Or maybe I won't be talking about the druids, but I guess you'll find out more about that when we get there. Uh, I will also be going over the number one foraging don't of all time in this week's very fungi QWP segment. You guys don't get how funny that is because you can't see the script written out, <laughs> but I like it. Um, uh, I do. I do love a good pun. I do love a, a good, a good fun guy pun. Uh, Nick is the honestly the queen of puns, it's and I true. love it. I'm gonna be such a. I'm gonna be such a good dad one day. But uh, so starting off today and sort of leaning into this week's unofficial theme, which is like deep woods magic. I wanted to talk about something that is a growing part of my own craft, but also something that seems to be taking root in mundane society as well, and that is foraging. So I think you'd probably have to be living under a rock not to have come across at least one of the Black Forager videos, aka Alexis Nicole, if you're not following. Give her a a little looky-loo on Instagram. Um, but her videos are about foraging in her local region of Ohio and some on the road stuff as well. Uh, and for people in the similar part of the country, or if you're just interested in some entertaining and wholesome foraging content, please check her out. Yeah, I just have to reiterate her Instagram is fucking bomb like it's so good and so funny and she's also a vegan and so she does a lot of cooking stuff with the foraged herbs too it's like oh cannot recommend enough and so kind of the reason i wanted to do this topic was because i saw lamb's ear right which is what our lovely co-host shannon is talking about today um and i was like i saw that on black forager and i was like ooh, foraging deep woods magic here we are um so it's a it's a mood it's like you know you know just just so everyone can kind of see and they don't think they're just like how are these things related they're related in my head because i also we have just so hilariously evolved into having themed episodes because i think back to the beginning and that was just like not a thing we did but i want you guys to enjoy like how much work mostly nick nick is very good like nick is the concept guy and he just kills it every week coming up with a thread to tie things together. Oh yeah. Uh, and it, it's fun. And you know, it's like, it's like, I will see the plant and then just be like, Oh, well, this is the, this is the theme. And I, I, I like it. It kind of keeps my thoughts organized, but moving into foraging, I would say we are, we are both kind of worry warts. We both have pretty heavy Virgo placements here at Wands and Fronds. So we got to start off with some of the heavier and not so fun stuff. Yeah, I feel like this is such a classic like Virgo moment, but also I feel like it would just be irresponsible to talk about foraging without covering it. So you go off, Nick. I'm, I'm about to go off. So to start with, and I will be going into this a little bit more in my segment on toxic mushrooms later on, but there's a lot of dangerous lookalike plants out there. 
that are just waiting to leave you dying on the toilet like foraging Elvis. But the good news is most reputable foraging field guides are going to identify these for you, as well as how to spot the actual good shit. So if you're looking at foraging content and they're not telling you what the lookalikes are, move on, uh, because that is crucial information. Uh, and I will talk about this later on with mushrooms, but it's always good to, you know, um, here in Austin, we have a pretty big sort of alternative spiritual community. And I know it would be the same in Los Angeles, for instance, but here you can go on herb walks. So you can find someone to take you out and show you things. And so that's going to be the top recommendation is like finding someone that already knows about this stuff to show you in person. Um yeah, and I would say one idea too that I've seen a lot of people suggest that I think is really good is if you do want to like go the book route to learn, you should get a few different copies of the book so you're seeing different pictures of the same plant because sometimes especially for lookalikes, they you might be looking for clues that are not like immediately obvious. So having a variety of different like depictions of the plant can really help too. And uh, you know, just to kind of illustrate this point, I think a good example is something that we've actually covered in an in-depth topic, uh, which is dandelions, right? Every part of the dandelion has some kind of like good medicinal effect, but you know, you know, top to root, it's an edible plant. You can eat it. You can make tea out of it. It's great. We love dandelions. Dandelions, if you're trying to get into foraging, they literally grow on all seven continents, which is a fun fact. Yeah. And like in concrete they'll grow in fucking everything it's really remarkable and i mean you know it's like and they do it because of science in antarctica but i it still counts there's dandelions on all seven continents so it's pretty likely that as a little baby forager you would want to start with something simple and easy to identify like a dandelion but you probably say to yourself i'm a grown-ass person i know what the fuck a dandelion looks like but i know that was my first thought Right. Even beginner-friendly dandelions have lookalikes. And while, thankfully, the lookalikes, which are cat's ear and sow thistle, are not toxic to humans in the you're-gonna-die way, they will certainly be less enjoyable than if you just had regular old dandelions, uh, you get an upset stomach, you know, bad texture bad flavor, etc. And I think the one that you brought up, which I I looked into this actually for like several minutes after you brought this up as as sort of a note, uh hemlock will straight up kill you if you eat it. Possibly. If nothing else, it will make you very very sick. Yeah, no one drinks or eats hemlock and feels good afterwards. No, 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 no. But I will tell you, I looked at a lot of pictures of this today, and it looks a lot like wild carrot and wild parsnip, which are perfectly fine to forage and eat. Uh, So. Yeah, it's like crazy. And if you guys aren't familiar, I would like encourage you to do a Google. And if nothing else, I think that'll really drive home how important what Nick's saying is. They look so similar that I personally I'm not at a point where I would feel comfortable foraging for wild carrots or parsnips just because they look so close and I don't have that much experience. And they're related. 
And so they have a lot of overlapping growing territories because they like the same kinds of things because they're related. Yep. So it's like one of them is is a nice little tasty treat, a little wild carrot, a little wild parsnip, yum, yum, yum. And one of them uh, could kill you. Uh, and they really, 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 really look very similar. So I would say, please be aware of this on your journey. And please don't ingest anything that you aren't 100% sure about. Uh, yeah, I love this. Um, there's a an herbalist that I get a newsletter from. She runs, I think, the Chestnut School of Herbs. And she has this saying that she says all the time that like, you can be a bold mushroom forager, or you can be an old mushroom forager, but you will never be an old, bold mushroom forager. That is very, very good advice. The other not so fun thing to think about, if you decide to take up wild foraging, is just general preparedness. So if I was going to go on a nature walk, like I often do in the Greenbelt Nature Preserve area near my home, I would probably just wear shorts, running shoes, my headphones, and probably just have a bottle of water with me. And to the uninitiated, you might think that going foraging is going to be like a hike plus. But please, don't let my thorn scratches be in vain and take some advice from me. So, this is pants time, people. Not skirt time. Okay? It's not short time. It's not time for short. It's time for pants. Actual pants. Uh, Not a drill. Okay? So, a lot of times, the things that you're looking for, the little untouched gems in the forest, so to speak, are very much off the beaten path. And to get there, you're looking at going through some underbrush. And the underbrush here in Texas is thorny as fuck. That's like its whole job is to stop you from going deeper into the woods. But also, that thorny underbrush is sometimes wild blackberries. So as Martha says, it's a good thing. But speaking of which, lots of forageable berries are on prickly, thorny, itchy, or otherwise unpleasant plants. So gloves, people. We're talking pants. We're talking gloves. So I steal like food prep gloves from work and use them for all sorts of things from deep cleaning my litter boxes to not getting my fingers sticky out in the bush. Uh, And, you know, a little rubber glove like that isn't going to protect you from thorns, but like sticky leaves and things for something that you already have found and want to harvest. Those will be fine. But there, there is literally no excuse because literally every 7-Eleven in this country of America sells basic workman's gloves for like 10 bucks. So you really have no excuse. You got to get something on your hands. And uh, also, don't forget to bring something to put your foraged goodies in. So you might like the romantic imagery of being sort of like a hard scrabble pioneer woman coming home with your apron pockets full of fresh berries, but A, you're ruining your apron, or more likely your cute hiking backpack, and B, you're literally going to take home more stuff if you remember to just bring a reusable grocery bag. Um, also, you need a knife, or good scissors, or both. Gloves are there to protect your precious little fingies, but you'll also make less of a mess, and leave the parts of the plant that you don't want where they belong if you bring something to cut with. So, 
Finally, before we move on to the fun, fun stuff, as we've said before, please do your foraging away from roadsides, especially if the road existed before unleaded gasoline was a thing. All the lovely and edible and magically usable plants there are unfortunately still tainted with lead, and therefore yucky by default, which is sad but true. So, diving into the fun part, yay! Uh, I did want to do a little deep dive into things that I actually forage, uh, and so the magical implications, if applicable, and sort of my personal experiences. So this next bit is very Texas-themed, uh, but that's kind of the whole deal with foraging. So like, even if you were one state away from me in New Mexico, Oklahoma, or Louisiana, for instance, you'd probably be able to find one or two of the things that I'm talking about, or you could find none of them, depending on where you're at. Um, but if you were in Oregon or Washington or California, you're probably not going to find any of these unless they're planted there as part of landscaping, et cetera, et cetera. So, um, but moving on. Uh, so as many of you know, I do have a certain affinity for like Dionysian energy, Bacchanalia, and therefore it will come as no surprise that my top forageable thing is muscadine grapes. Uh, so, Vitus rotundifolia, for all you Latin nerds out there. Muscadine grapes are native to the southeastern United States, generally speaking, but are found as far north as New Jersey, and thankfully for me, as far west as Texas, where I live. And while I'm admittedly on the very edge of their growing range, I do happen to know where the vines are here in town. And it is no surprise at all that they are in a heavily wooded area near the river because they thrive on heat and humidity, which is kind of their top advantage over other grapes. They really, really like the heat and they're not so delicate about it. Uh, they do love the humidity, so... That's why they don't go further west into Texas, where it is a desert. Um, but they do uh, use trees for support. So if you think of your, your classic grapevines, they, they need a trellis or something to hold the vine up to grow. Muscadine grapes use trees because they're wild. Uh, so magically speaking, I would say I think it's a no-brainer that anywhere grapes just randomly grow in the forest is a pretty good spot to perform Dionysian rituals. Also, invoking Pan feels very appropriate here. But also, like, using the leaves and vines as part of an altarscape or, like, to zhuzh up a flower crown would also be very nice. Because uh, these things uh, are, are food safe, first of all. So you're not going to have too much trouble with skin allergies unless you just have, like, a general grass allergy is kind of the vibe. So if you're one of those people that gets welts from just sitting in normal grass, you know, wearing flower crowns is not for you. So putting grapevine leaves in a flower crown is obviously not for you. But that's that's a that's a side tangent. Um, now, I would also say it's kind of like. I don't know, it's like as it's something I was introduced to as a kid. And it's like one of the first things where like an adult in my life, like my dad and my grandpa would always point us out when they would see a muscadine vine and they would take us out to eat the grapes right off the vine. 
And it's like that, that familial connection to nature and those like memories of my family, like showing me something in nature that can be so nourishing, I think is magical in and of itself. Um, oh yeah and I feel like that's just that's such a like warm and fuzzy feeling story so yeah and I mean you know it's like they would literally like I remember this one time my dad just like stopped the car and we like walked out into the middle of these trees because he could spot it like from the road and we like walked out into these trees and just like picked muscadine grapes and just ate them right off the vine um I love that and, you know, it's like I, that to me is magic, like, you know, passing down this almost like ancestral knowledge of like wild things that you can benefit from is, I don't know, to me, it's like very, like very much at the core of what I personally feel is magical. Uh, but the grapes themselves are so good and they're super sweet if you get to them in time. They, like, cook down into a nice syrup for pancakes, uh, which also, you know, for those people in the kind of the Northwest, uh, think like huckleberries. So, like, the way you would use huckleberries where you cook them down almost, like, between simple syrup and jam and then put it over pancakes or cornbread or whatever is similar to how you would treat a muscadine grape in this way. You're just making me so hungry for fucking waffles with muscadine grape jelly like that jelly like syrup stuff oh it's so good it is so good and you can make wine with them you can juice them although if you're juicing wild berries just know they probably have wild yeast which is why they're a good candidate for winemaking by the way Uh, but you wouldn't want to leave that juice out longer than a day don't drink day old muscadine juice uh if you're juicing them fresh um (laughs) But, you know, I wouldn't seek these out if it's something you're interested in, like expecting like table grapes. So these are a lot smaller. They're like blueberry sized. They do have a thicker skin. A popular way to eat them is like to pop them in your mouth and then suck all the like juice and seeds out and then spit out the skin. Because some people don't like it. I'll eat the whole thing. But, you know, if like the little fruit skin bothers you, um, people will just spit it out. Uh, But it's they grow in very sparsely fruited and more spaced out bunches. So like when you think of like a, a table grapevine or like a wine grapevine, you think of these like heavy bunches of big juicy grapes. These are not those. Uh, these are, these are wild. Um, but in the summertime, like walking the trails and finding some of these like ripe right off the vine really is heaven. And yeah, it always, it feels so much like like a gift from the universe when yes. you find them during the summer like it's so it is it's so magical to find them it, and uh, the part of that too is that they are food for all sorts of wildlife so there's really just like a very slim window between ripe fruit on the vine and the grapes are gone um so deer love these birds love these squirrels love these bugs love these uh but And I did kind of want to throw this in there because I looked this up because I was like, oh, muscadine grapes, one of my favorite summer treats that you can find in the woods, but it's really hard to find them with the fruit still on them because all the animals love it, right? Here's the silver lining. If you love Mediterranean food like myself, 
if you don't find a muscadine grapevine in that magical and elusive ready-to-eat time, do not despair, because you can make dolmas from the leaves. Yes, that is right. I have done the research. This is true. You, you just, like, blew my mind with this, by the way. Like, my uh, mind is blown. This is so fucking smart and rad. This is, this is from a Greek person living in Texas. That, well, also, like, just looking into the toxicity of it. So I looked at the Centers for Disease Control just to make extra super sure that there is nothing toxic in a muscadine grape leaf. Yeah, because they will, like, they say so much shit is toxic. So if they don't say it, you're definitely safe. Uh, so you can get free dolma ingredients right there in the woods. So, you know, don't worry if you don't get to the grapes. Great. Make some. Make some dolmas. Uh, which brings me to my second Texan forageable, um, which is actually what we call wild garlic, but it's actually more closely related to a garlic chive or a green onion. And so Shannon, being from Texas, I know you have seen these. You've probably picked some. You've probably eaten some. Oh, yeah. And so now these are the ones that you might find in your literal own backyard because that's where I've always found them, and, like, especially yards that are kind of overgrown and reverting back to nature a bit. Uh, so these tend to grow in, like, full sun areas and blend in with, like, the grasses and wildflowers of an overgrown yard. So they produce, like, small purplish-white flowers when fully mature that do somewhat resemble the non-edible white flowers that you get here in Texas after the hard rains. So... This is another warning for lookalikes, because those are not food. But you will know immediately if you have a patch of wild garlic chives, if you are mowing or string trimming and you smell them, because the smell is so, so, so strong. And it's like a combo of onion and garlic. And so cooking-wise, you can use these as like a garlicky version of green onions and the bulbs while Small, like a green onion bulb, pack a very mild garlicky punch and cook well into other dishes, especially in a pinch. You know, if you didn't have a garlic in your cabinet, but you had some of these little wild garlic chives growing in your yard, it's a good substitute. You know, like a one-to-one substitute, too. It's just going to be a little milder. Um, But the really nice thing here, though, is that these sort of wild garlic chives are considered an invasive species here in Texas, so you can feel good knowing that you're doing your part. And also, these are more widespread and sustainable than the uh, perennial it girl among, like, wild alliums, which is ramps, which have a long, complicated life cycle and don't really recover well if they're over-harvested. So, leave the ramps alone. Go for the garlic chimes. They do like similar uh, soils and light requirements, so, you know, maybe look, if you see some ramps, maybe look around, there could be other wild alliums in the area, such as these garlic chives. And I would say magically, you would use these the same way as other garlics, so for things like protection magic, especially uh, with the small size of the chives and flowers, would make them really appealing for like small charms and little sachets. And dare I even suggest tiny little garlic braids? I think that would be adorable. But 
my last Texan Origible is something that I'm very excited to be talking about because, and I am mentioning this one, because I only recently, within the last like three months, learned that these are edible. And while you see them all over Austin as like a heat-loving landscape plant, I have been on the lookout for a wild patch to try harvesting and have finally found one in my local green belt. So I'm actually really excited to try these out. So hmm, Malva viscus arboreus is a mm. flowering, not quite evergreen shrub, about two or three feet tall, but can grow up to nine feet tall, like their hibiscusy cousins. They are a cousin to hibiscus in the mallow family. Um, but the flowers never seem to quite open up. So it gives them what... I would feel to be more appropriately described as like a bishop's hat shape. I don't know what a Turk's cap is, but uh, it, it's like the it's it's like a pope hat. It's pope hat shape or bishop's hat shape, uh, and but it's bright, 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 bright red. So I would say this is these would be very good uh, for like magic involving fire signs or like involving fiery energies. Um, you don't use it where you would use hibiscus. Uh, and so the two most common ways to use Turk's cap flowers, so you, you do use the flowers like hibiscus. Um, the rest of it is not toxic, but there's really not much to write home about uh, herbal-wise. It does produce berries that are, are apparently flavorless. So non-toxic, non-toxic, but flavorless berries. Um, but baking it into cakes for like a pop of color and that tart hibiscusy flavor, or brewing it as a tea to make delicious pink lemonades, um, which is also something I've done with hibiscus and is very good. But I also feel like, as I mentioned, these have like very big fire energy because of that like bright, bright, bright red color. And there's just a little touch of yellow on that big pistol stem that comes out, which is the uh, pollen. So it's like, red and yellow hello very fiery and i think it would be a good topping for like a, a llamas cake for mm, a texan i love that because they do flower in the peak summer energy uh and as always i'm like sun tea yeah so because these things flower at the peak of summer why not double down on that like radiant summer solar energy i mean the power that that has uh, and rounding out this section, my Texan foraging runners up were prickly pears, obviously. They grow everywhere on those little nopales cactuses. And Indian paintbrushes. So prickly pears, pretty straightforward. The only trick is to plan to forage these on like a night that you're going to have a bonfire. Because you can burn the little pricklies off with fire a lot easier than trying to peel them off with a pocket knife. And Indian Paintbrush has delightful little honeysuckle-like nectar pods in amongst the flowers. They're like yellow. You pull them out, you put them in your mouth, and uh, you feel like a fairy sitting in a field of flowers eating nectar. Um, there is a bit of an art to it, but I think it's it's kind of like the honeysuckle thing. If you if you see someone do it once, you're like, oh yes, yeah, it makes sense. It makes um, sense. 
I wanted to plug a few things that you could think about foraging in California. I'm not oh, going to like... Oh, of course, of course. No, I was yeah. like, please take the floor because, <laughs> because I've only seen like the landscaping plants and the stuff that you personally grow in California. Yeah, exactly. So a good one is um, black mustard. And one of the best things about foraging for black mustard is you can basically take however fucking much you can carry because it's an invasive and can cause problems during forest fires. Um, So definitely forage for black mustard. Uh, Also, the California poppy, the orange flower, those are like such good medicine. We also have like the California bay laurel, which you can definitely get lots of bay leaves for magical purposes. And I think probably the one that most people might not realize grows here, but currants. You can find currants growing in Southern California. So those are some good ones to keep in mind. And I also want to plug I don't know what the regulations are in other states, so I would look it up. But in California, you can't forage in state parks. Federal parks have like slightly looser rules. I mean, it's they're kind of like, you know, don't take a lot. You can do a little bit of foraging. But in the state parks in California, it's like a total no. And you can get in big fucking trouble if they find you doing it. So just like be aware when you're out foraging in parks in particular, just like double check the rules. Yes. Uh, And I mean... Also, kind of like with your local people in your neighborhood. I mean, because, you know, I feel like there's kind of this thing that people who are into foraging would also be the ones to, to maybe like, you know, go pick up loquats out of someone's yard. And, you know, you just want to make sure that like those people are okay with that because, yeah, you never, you don't want to trespass. Yeah, you definitely don't want to trespass. And also, like, I have constantly had to kind of, like, keep an eye now that some of my fruits and veggies that grow out near the sidewalk are getting ready. If you see someone else growing stuff, like, even if it's, like, weedy stuff that you think is just part of their yard, I would still ask because you don't know necessarily. Right. Just be like, hey, uh, can I pick your dandelions, please? And they'll probably be like, yeah, fucking go for it, weirdo. Right. They'll be like, oh, God, you're just sorry. You're just asking to weed my front yard. <laughs> so but, you know, uh, be respectful uh, of the, the local laws and the local people. Uh, and I think that is a good place to pivot into our QWP section for this week. A pivot indeed. Which uh, I have titled Not So Magic Mushrooms. So I. We wouldn't be our kooky, anxiety-riddled selves if we didn't follow up our fun and frolicking segment on foraging with a truly serious and dark warning, because we're fun like that. But please, 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 if you want to get into foraging, please do not try to forage for mushrooms, unless you have an experienced guide that is not a video from the internet or even a book like an actual person who does this regularly. So, the example I'm going to use here is one that I think serves as a good warning. Chanterelle mushrooms. So, we love delicious chanterelles. They have a pretty broad growing range here in the States. You see them in fancy restaurants and bougie recipe websites. And you know you live in the range. It's a large range. You feel certain you know what you're doing. And then, bam, you've eaten jack-o'-lantern mushrooms, which look almost exactly like chanterelles. 
and your projectile vomiting and shitting your guts out at the same time because you were so sure you knew what you were doing. And that is literally a mild example. Uh, another one that I think is worth noting here, a lot of psilocybin mushroom lookalikes can literally kill you. Uh, a few yeah, of the bra- very important. I'm so glad you like pointed that one out. And uh, a few of the black truffle mushroom lookalikes will literally kill you. Uh, so you're not as lucky as you think you are. Do not die on the toilet like foraging Elvis, please. Uh, and that is all I have to say about that. I love that. Well, for my segment today, talking about lamb's ears, I wanted to start by thanking our dear friend Bridget for this one. Um, she and I were talking about lamb's ears on Instagram the other day. So that's where this idea came from. And Bridget, look, like the entire episode was themed kind of around this. So thanks. Um, so the Latin name for this is Stachys lanata, and it has really beautiful, like silvery gray felt like foliage with like tiny purplish flowers that come up on spikes. And at least to me, I think they have almost like a slight pineapple scent to them. Like they're really deliciously smelling. Like it's, I, I love it. I love the way that lamb's ear smells. Um, and obviously so do hummingbirds and bumblebees because they're a pollinator favorite. Like these guys are really cool. Um, but these, there's so much to these plants. Like they're very cute. They're very precious. They're very pettable. But then they're also like kind of badasses medicinally and magically. But the best news here, guys, this is a super easy plant to grow. Um, it's native to the Middle East, so it's super drought tolerant, which I think is very important for more and more of us these days, unfortunately. But they're pretty tolerant, like to the point that you can probably grow them just about anywhere. These are a plant that can grow in like full sun. Um, it can grow in full sun, but it'll also keep like thriving and partial shade as well. And it's going to be fine in just about like any soil, um, whether or not the soil is shitty, like you don't necessarily need great soil here. Just make sure that it's well draining because this is a plant that hates wet feet. It grows really close to the ground. So if the ground stays too wet, it'll like rot because it's kind of like a it, it's one of those plants that spreads across the ground kind of like a quilt. So don't get it too wet. And when you first plant it up, you can like you can add a bit of compost, but you don't really need to worry about feeding this one either, like in an ongoing manner. Like it's it's super low maintenance. You can opt to grow it from seed, but there's again, there's really nothing special to note on seed starting for this plant because it is just pretty chill. But I've definitely seen the starts. Um, and you know, you'll just go to wherever you buy your plants locally, your local nursery, pick out a few starts, and then I would just space them about a foot apart because these are these are a member of the mint family, so they really do spread. So when you plant them, they might look a little sparse with those little starts being a foot apart, but I promise you, like before you know it, they will meet in the middle and you'll have plenty. Um, so they do this interesting thing though, speaking of spreading, where they have a tendency to like grow from the center out. So sometimes you can actually end up with like a dead spot in the middle of your like lamb's ears patch. Um, and if that happens, you know, you can just take a division from the edge and plant it in the center. There's so much of it. But I always find it kind of interesting when plants have like weird growing patterns. It almost seems like like kind of like a natural fairy ring in a really sweet magical way. Um but the other good thing about this, it's not super pest prone. Like really the only thing that you super need to watch out for with lamb's ear is overwatering cuz it will rot. But other than that, like this is a really like easy plant to manage. Um it's almost like weed like. So the care for it 
really straightforward. But this is a really, really cool plant from an herbalism perspective. So first you can totally eat the young leaves in a salad. And in Brazil, there's apparently a dish where they basically batter and fry the young lamb's ear leaves. And I am here for it. Uh, Delicious. But as far as like the herbal energetics go, this is like a cooling plant, but it's also moist and astringent, which I think is worth noting because it's really unique to be both moist and astringent. Like it's already an interesting plant. It's kind of like the way that chamomile can be both cooling and warming. Some plants are just like really badass at like shape shifting in the system and lamb's ears, definitely one of those. And for centuries, literally centuries, this plant was used for like wound dressing on the battlefield because it's it's essentially a plant band-aid. Like the soft fuzzy leaves help absorb blood and they help the wound clot, but the leaves also have like antibacterial, antiseptic, and anti-inflammatory properties, um, which kind of reminded me of our dear friend Yarrow. Works a little differently, but I feel like they're good buddies. And this can be used to also like hold other herbs in if you're using it as like a wound dressing so like you could do something like yarrow or comfrey on the wound and then cover it in one of these it's it's really like a badass alternative to store-bought band-aids um and in particular if you're like out and about whenever you hurt yourself um because i always think about the billion times i fall uh i'm very clumsy but in particular like being on like a hike and you like trip and scrape your knee well if you got a little bit of lamb's ear around, you basically have a cool Band-Aid. Um, and so if you get stung by a bee or a wasp, you can also slap a leaf on it and that'll help like take some of the sting out and will help it heal up. So you'll be like right as rain in no time. So to help with like sore throats, colds and gum and throat infections and even asthma, you can just make like a really nice strong tea for this. And when I'm talking about making teas and herbalism, I want to kind of like clarify what I mean, because when I talk about like things like chamomile is like a really powerful herb, I'm not talking about like the tea packets of chamomile that you find at the grocery store, because those only have like a teaspoon of like kind of old chamomile in it, which is great and delicious. But if you're wanting to use it medically, when I'm talking about making teas, I'm talking about like taking a jar and filling up like half of it with your dried herb blends, pouring boiling water on it, putting a like lid on the top and then letting that bad boy sit for half an hour. That's what a tea looks like for herbalists. And so if you have like a really bad cold with like a sore throat, you want to make like a really strong tea of lamb's ear. So it's going to take a bit of it, but that's how you get all those like badass medicinal benefits out of it. And the leaves can also be like simmered and then the water can be cooled and strained. And you can use that as like an eye wash for styes, which Bridget and I were also talking about. Hey, oh, um, I for some reason, I'm one of those people that's prone to styes. So it's like anything that's good for that, I'm here for. I've also seen like a few people have talked about how great this plant is to grow with your kids, which I think is cute because because it's like so pettable. And so I know this, I guess, isn't really herbal, whatever. But if you want to get your kid into herbalism and like growing herbs, you can like help them grow this one and then they can pet it and think it's all cute. And then you can help them make a tea. And I just feel like it's a good way to like get your young herbalists involved. Um, well, and I, I was, I was going to say there too. It's like when I was a kid, I used to grow uh, violets oh, all violets. the time. They're so and, good. And I would sit there and pet the little leaves. Cause they, they also have the silky leaves on the yeah. violets. And it would like, like after a stressful day at school, like I would go to my little plant shelf and I would just like stroke the little leaves. And I don't know, I think it's good for like kids with 
ADHD and like autism spectrum disorders where it's like if you experience a lot of like sensory overload like little fuzzy stuff like that is very calming oh that's such a good point I love that um on a much less cute point but very practical uh I would say that lamb's ear leaves could also make really good toilet paper if you're out in nature out in the nature yeah out in the nature use a leaf Use a leaf, and these are like soft and luxurious. The Charmin bears wouldn't fucking know what hit them if they use some lamb's ears. Right. Anyway, <laughs> so let's talk about magic. Um, so this is a great plant for healing magic, right? Like when you think about all of these cool medicinal properties, like it's basically nature's band aid. Like, of course, it's great for healing magic. I've also seen several recommendations to use it in like magic to protect against nightmares. So, you know, I have to say this would be a good addition to a sleep sachet. Oh, not ones and fronds recommending (laughs) an herb and a sleep sachet. Excuse me. But also, like, this would be great in a tea with lemon balm. Speaking of, like, the people that are taking a drink every time we hit one of our hallmarks. Um, (laughs) The other, another cool thing that I think would be fun to do with this herb is, like, to throw it into bonfires for, like, additional protection when you're at Sabbath celebrations, which is also cool because, like, this is a plant that's going to grow really prolifically. And I always like having, like, ideas to do things like that with those plants like I don't necessarily want to burn like my California poppy because it doesn't grow as prolifically but lamb's ear is perfect for that type of thing it's also a good herb to use in magic for kids so if you're like a mom or a dad and you want to cast a protection spell for the babes or even if you're like an aunt or uncle like you know maybe around now since it's back to school time like you could include lamb's ear and like spell work you're doing there or even just maybe like give them a little piece of it to like keep in their pocket that would be such a good little like magical artifact for them to take with them uh this is also a great addition to a moon garden because of the silvery sheen on the leaves and on that note i just like i almost have a moon flower one of my deterra flowers is finally about to open and now i'm literally checking it every single night it's so exciting um but I just wanted to like add a note, like normally I start with all of the like associations, but there isn't a lot of info on this one in like traditional witchy herb books. And I, I do kind of love that because it makes me feel like this is one that has not necessarily caught on in the, the woo woo community as much, which I think is kind of cool because it's so useful, but it's like, I, I had to buy calendula from like a different source than my local herbarium because calendula has now become so fucking trendy in the herbalism world so it's like lamb's ear not being all over the place i think is kind of cool because that means we won't have to fucking like run out of it at our local herb shops because all the chicks from fucking instagram want to come on and just like do what they saw online anyway i'm whining um so there's not a lot of notes on it like in other like witchy books but when i'm looking at this and like thinking about the way it works medicinally to me uh based on my intuition i feel like this would be associated with the water element and i'd consider this like a feminine plant and based on like that water association i'd say that like venus is probably a pretty good guess for a planetary ruler for this um and then basically i think any sea deities you could work with with lamb's ear um i'm just yeah i just feel like i'm getting big water vibes from her just like with the way she works and like being very like soothing and like 
cooling and moist. I don't know. Anyway, so I used a few resources today, gardeningknowhow.com, thespruce.com, farmhomestead.com, hedgecraft101.tumblr.com, and gothichorrorstories.com. Well, I mean, none of that information sounded like a gothic horror story, so... Well, not... you'll have to figure out which parts <laughs> it was. Well, you know what? I, you know what I will say is that what it was my understanding that you find lamb's ear a lot in uh, old Civil War battlefields because yeah. of its popular use as a uh, wound dressing, and mm-hmm. so that's why it does grow in some of the places where it grows. As just from like a kind of circling back around to the foraging thing is that you find it on old Civil War battlefields because of that. And uh, that's yeah, kind of... Yeah, been planting it all over the place. That's kind of spooky. Spooky AF. Yeah. <laughs> so, anyway. maybe that, so maybe that's, 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 that's it. You know, that's got to be it, right? I'll never tell. You'll never tell. All right. Well, <laughs> I, guess, I guess we just have to move on then. That's right. And, and uh, just kind of finishing up this episode... You know, I, again, you know, like the unofficial theme was like deep woods magic. And I was thinking about like druids, you know? So like when I think of a druid, I think of like this sort of cloaked, bushy bearded character, like the pop culture druid with like a sweet oak laurel on his head and like a staff and like a fucking, you know, like Gandalf. Is it Gandalf? It's not Gandalf. Maybe it's Gandalf. Yeah, no, it's Gandalf. You're right. But to be honest, that's how I want to be when I'm an old guy. And I don't mind saying it here on the show. Uh, But to be honest, I think one of the coolest and most frustrating at the same time things about the Druids is how mysterious they were. So this is kind of like the sub in for the deity profile. Like I wanted to talk about Druids. And... It's, you know, every time I try to, like, branch out like this, I run into this weird dead end, right? So. Yeah, it's like the universe sometimes feels like it's punishing us when we go off the beaten path. True. So (laughs) I'm like, it's widely noted that all of the firsthand information we have about druids is scarce. And maybe a dozen or so pages of large type, of large type font. So. How's this for a fucking source? The prime source of information we have about druids, period, is Gaius Julius Caesar, the literal emperor of Rome from the first century, who, I mean, everyone knows the story of Julius Caesar. He got stabbed uh, in the Roman Senate, the Ides of March, all of that. Etu Brute, etc. Etc, etc. But unusually... Even in the context of the larger text, you know, he was just writing about the the borderlands of Rome, right? Uh, He does talk about the Druids' religion and kind of relates it to the Roman pantheon, assuming that they're worshipping Mercury. Whereas when he goes to the other tribal regions of, you know, like Gaul and, uh, you know, the Slavic regions and even, you know, kind of north into like the Germanic areas, he talks about their local religions as like quirky local shamanism and kind of leaves it at that. But, you know, he, t- he seems very impressed by the, the hierarchy of it all, the, the complexity of it all. And it is 
worth noting that he does go a little bit more into detail about the Druid's religion than any other of the local religions that he encounters in these, like, Roman borderlands. So, this is, like, his first-hand account of the Druids. Uh, He describes, like, a highly stratified, like, a caste system for the Druids. So there uh, was a chief Druid who wore, like, golden cloaks, right? Very cool. Uh, I want a golden cloak. I want to be a head druid. I'm mad that I don't already have a golden cloak. I'm honestly, well, I mean, you'll find out why we don't. I mean, it's a, it's a hard job, uh, but it's, it's highly stratified. There's like a top guy who has a golden cloak. He's like the, the druid pope. Uh, they're philosophers, like the proper druids, like the top guys. So you have like the, the druid pope and then you have like the druid bishops. Uh, they're philosophers, they're ceremonial officiants, that's that's who you would get married by, uh, judges. So literally, uh, it, and this is kind of one of those like secondhand things, uh, just to be clear, not from Julius Caesar himself, but supposedly a druid could walk out onto a battlefield and stop a battle between two warring factions and then uh, sort of adjudicate it, which is resolve the conflict without warfare simply by giving out, handing out a judgment because they were judges, uh, which, you know, kind of cool. Just like walking out onto a battlefield and being like, uh, yeah, no, we're not going to do this. I don't want, I don't want to do this. Like, we're just gonna, you win. We're just gonna know. You like, it's like you win, you lose, you're right, you're wrong. Go home, give us some slaves. All right. Get the fuck out of here. Uh, but so below the like the bishop druids that like so they were the according to julius caesar so kind of going back to the official story was that the druids were equal with the gentry so your lords and ladies right but not lords and ladies you had to work for it you had to work your way up uh but these are like you know kind of like in medieval society the the princes of the church right they can't go anywhere uh, without, you know, getting food for free and a, and a nice place to stay and all of that. Uh, and so below them, you had the bards, which bardic druidism survived a lot longer than the whole official hierarchy. So that's kind of, they go from place to place, traveling storytellers. And that's why a lot of the Irish folklore survived as long as it did, because you had people practicing what what would be called like bardic druidism until you know like the 1500s uh before it was like completely stamped out by the catholic church uh and so that's why you know like um all, all of the stories about lou and the tuatha de Danann like survived through this this oral tradition of traveling storytellers like druidic bards who would tell these stories in song over a drink at a pub which they stay at the pub for free because they're sitting by the fire telling stories and singing songs but it's good that they did that because it kept some of it to life uh, some of it alive right and so below them you had druids in training who were like intern druids and had to do a lot of the grunt work 
Uh, so if you think you've got like the Pope, you've got the the bishops, you've got the fathers who are like the ones that are like down on the local level, telling the stories, repeating the folklore time and time again. And then you have assistants, you know, who's chopping the wood, who's making the soup, who's loading up the mule so we can go on to the next town, etc., etc. Uh, and it was part of it. Like you had to work your way up. And that's kind of the interesting thing is that anyone who was willing to take the upwards of 20 plus years memorizing all of the druidic mysteries and the songs and the legends could be a, could be a fully fledged druid, including women, which was unusual. I mean, especially in the world that's going on at the same time as, as the Roman emperors and the Roman empire, which was a very patriarchal society. It was unusual for them to see women in power. Uh, most of them were dudes, but uh, there were lady druids. They could own property. They could divorce their husbands. Uh, and they, st- they still held the same position as the other druids and could cast a judgment as a judge and officiate a ceremony, just like uh, any other druid. So, you know, good for them. A little bit of gender equality. Uh, although it was notably not present in the rest of society. So if you were a woman at the time who wanted freedom from the patriarchal society at large, you could decide to become a druid. So, you know. It's like, druidry, here we come, ladies. <laughs> oh, right, right, right. Uh, so, the here's the shitty thing. It was a real bummer. They they intentionally didn't write things down. And so part of that is because they didn't have a written language, which, you know, is what it is. Uh, Yeah, that kind of throws a wrench into the whole writing things down. But it was like a cultural thing, too. So, I mean, if you look at Norse mythology, they had a written language, which uh, we would call, like, Futhark runes, um, is one example. but. They also uh, learned Danish and then they wrote the shit down when, you know, as soon as they had like a, a, a suitably advanced enough writing system, they were like, well, we're going to write down the stories of Odin and Thor and Loki and Freya and Frigg, you know, everyone. Uh, and even though a lot of that is flavored by Christianity because the people who wrote it had already converted, they thought it was important to write it down. Whereas the Druids were like, we keep our secrets. That's why we don't write them down. We pass them verbally. They keep it secret, keep it safe. <laughs> keep it secret, keep it safe. Uh, and so we kind of look at these things and we can only hear secondhand. So like there is no poetic or or prose edda of what the Druids actually believed in. Like we have the Tuatha Dudanan which is like the Irish folklore version. And that's pretty much it. Um, But so we know what Caesar was interested in, which was like the power structure and like what their sort of administrative role was in society. Like that's why, you know, he's like, oh, they do weddings, they do ceremonies, they do sacrifices. And that's kind of uh, controversial, actually. Um, So Caesar said he has a firsthand account about the wicker man. So, you know, the wicker man, they would shove slaves and prisoners into a 
I mean, think Burning Man, but there's people inside. And they would do that supposedly to like ensure a victory in a war or have a good harvest. But here's the thing about that, though, is that even at the time, it was speculated by the people back in Rome that this was propaganda. And archaeologists have yet to find any traces whatsoever of large-scale human sacrifice that could be remotely associated with Druidism or pre-Roman Celtic and Gaelic societies in general. I mean, you would think there would at least be like a bog body or something, but no. So it seems unlikely that that was anything other than propaganda. But we do have another first-hand account of the Druids, and that is the Roman historian and contemporary of Julius Caesar, Cicero. So Cicero speaks of the Druids as fortune tellers who used astronomy and augury, uh, which is animal intestines, to predict events. So this is actually echoed in a lot of these more secondhand accounts of Druids from the time, and like kings and lords in Gaul and in the Roman Empire would reportedly seek out the advice of these like fortune-telling druids for personal gain. But apart from these first-hand accounts, everything else we know about the druids comes second-hand. So here's the really shitty thing. There was supposedly a very detailed account put together by Socian of Alexander in approximately 300 BC that is extensively referenced in other texts by people who had never set foot outside Roman territory, much less met a Celtic person. Uh, But that original text has sadly been lost to history outside of the references to the original text and like quotes. But from those pieces, we get some of the more backgroundy things about druids. So, for instance, the druidic obsession with oak trees is said to be mentioned in this text because, like, the origin of the name druid comes from the Gaelic or Old Celtic uh, dwar, dwar. There's a couple different versions, but it's basically dwar, which is sort of like a double entendre for an oak grove. And then they had uid, they add uid, which is apparently a Vedic suffix for the word, which means like practitioner or like almost like doctor. But yeah, it's it's part of the Ayurveda. Yeah, comes yeah, yeah. From, comes from that when you're thinking about. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So they, it's kind of like a weird Roman compound of like the original Celtic Gaelic word with this like Vedic uh, pre or uh, suffix uh, to kind of be like druid, which is like oak doctor, basically, you know. Okay, but like, how fucking cool is the band name Oak Doctor? Oak because doctor. someone's um, got to start a band. <laughs> Professor Oak. Oh my. Yes. Okay. But we do know from surviving Celtic folklore that oak and holly and hazel and mistletoe were all sacred plants to the druids and sacred trees. And we also 
know when they celebrated their Sabbaths because of things like passage tombs and the Sabbaths that we can directly link to the older traditions that make up a lot of our sort of neo-pagan wheel of the year. But at the end of the day, I think the most fascinating thing about the Druids is that we don't know very much about them. And like as witches who really sort of crave like ancient and mysterious things, like you really can't help but like itch and salivate thinking about all of that lost knowledge. So like what else was in that book by Soshin? You know, like what what happens when a Druid excommunicates you? Right. What do you what do you do when you get to the sacred grove of holly trees? You know, because we know that that's where they worshipped. But what do you do when you get there? And like those answers, like the actual sort of minutiae of druidic religion, are completely lost in the mists of time. And that, to me, is just like really cool because they viewed it as a cultural goal to hang on to their secrets. And literally when they died out and moved on to Christianity and sort of blended into the the cultures at large, they did just that. And now we are kind of tasked with trying to reconstruct these traditional ways of doing magic and like worshiping nature with so little to go on. And it's, it's really mind blowing to think that this was going on for hundreds, if not possibly thousands of years. In the UK, in Ireland, in Scotland, in Wales, in northern France, in parts of Saxon Germany. But it's a yeah. dead end. We don't fucking know anything about them except what they looked like and like where they went to church. You know, it's like, what? <laughs> yeah. No, it's fascinating. I mean, it is. It's one of the great mysteries, right? And I, I know like modern Druidry has like reconstructed a lot of stuff, but it's still just like, we just don't know what we don't know. And that is one of the most amazingly interesting parts of this. And, uh, you know, one thing I did read that I think people out there would be interested in knowing was that apparently Winston Churchill was obsessed with trying to unravel the mystery of the Druids. Oh my god, that tracks. Doesn't that track? I mean, I'm like, wow. So, I mean, great people in history have been into this mystery. And, you know, it's like, we, we're, we're eventually going to find out some new shit about the Druids, I'm sure. Because yeah. archaeology is... Every, every day they discover something cool. Like, I mean, you know, to be fair, I live in like the history part of the BBC radio app. Like I live there, you know, my apartment is there. Um, and so I'm like, always like, wow, they're finding out cool new stuff. Like when are they going to find out something actually like informative about Druids? I'm just like, fingers crossed, you know? It's like, when is disclosure coming? <laughs> by disclosure, we just want to hear from the archaeologists about the Druids. Okay, thanks. Okay, thanks, um, bye. <laughs> well, we're getting close to the end here. So... I'm doing the tarot scope for today because, as you guys may have noticed, Nick did a fuck ton of work for this episode. Um, and I was really excited when I got Libra for today. So this is a message for you, our sweet, dear Libra babes, because who's babelier than a Libra? No, no one. one. No one. <laughs> and I've drawn for you today, Awakening. 
And this is in the traditional place of judgment in my herb crafter's tarot. But the card is associated with the herb Tulsi, which is also known as holy basil. And this plant is really remarkable. And it's been highly regarded for more than 3000 years, like recorded. People have totally like been enamored with this herb for thousands of years. And it has this really beautiful ability to like enhance your memory and restore energy. And there's even been like some, some research suggests that like holy basil might be like vital in finding a cure to like Alzheimer's. Like it's really a powerful restorative for your brain. Um, and this card, my dear Libras, is just a call to like take care of yourself because you have to make your well-being a priority in order to re- to be able to like really fully awaken your consciousness, like to help you connect to your higher self and committing to rituals that have special meaning to you and ones that contribute to your spiritual growth is something that's very important for you to do right now. Like this is an invitation to clear away distractions and things that are in your way, things that are like keeping you from reaching that next level. And I love this line from my guidebook that says, deepen your relationship with what enchants you. So that's the message for you, my dear Libras. And I think if anyone can lean into like beauty and enchantment, it's you. And really, we do need you guys like to be leveling up spiritually, because this is like such a shit show of a time to live through. And I just think that I, I love the judgment card because it is, you know, it, it's one of those cards that can be like a little tough, but really it's just about like letting things fall away that are no longer serving you, like dropping the mask. And I think that Libras are going to excel at that, but it's sometimes good to get the reminder that you have to like actually focus on you and things that help you grow. And there are just a couple of tips for herb crafting with Tulsi. Um, You can make or purchase Tulsi incense to help invigorate you and improve your awareness. They're a good like study incense. Uh, You could also think about drinking some Tulsi tea to help restore your health and help your body and spirit come into alignment. Um, And Libras, I think that would be great for you. Maybe while you're doing some of these uh, amazing spiritual practices, drink yourself some Tulsi tea. Yummy, yummy. Also, I just, I really like the smell of Tulsi. Yeah. That's, that's one that you've turned me on to. It's so good. I have some fresh Tulsi growing and it's like, I'm obsessed with it. It's truly yeah. a magical plant. It's, it's very nice. I it's, guess we should probably cover it at some point. Yeah, maybe. I don't know. I mean, we don't, yeah. it's like, it's like we do a podcast about herbs and shit, I guess. I know, right? And, you know, you guys might have noticed when we did the intro today, we have now changed it to magic herbalism and more. And if you have thoughts about that, we'd love to hear from you. But it just feels like we initially sought out to do something that was more houseplant focused. But as the podcast has evolved, it's really just the plant side of it has naturally, I think, shifted to herbalism. And that seems to be the thing that most listeners are asking us about. Um, But if you have like strong opinions about that and think we're being fucking idiots, like definitely let us know. You can send us an email and tell us how great we are or maybe be rude to wandsandfronspod at gmail.com. You can also send hate mail to us through Instagram and that's at wandsandfronspod. 
Uh, and I will I will respond to any hate mail personally by coming to your house and beating your ass. So yeah, it's fun. And I also want to thank people that already sent me birthday wishes, even though some of you may have been doing it at the threat of your safety from our dear co-host here, Nicholas. It's so sweet, guys. And tomorrow is my birthday when we're recording this. So woo! Yeah, twenty two. Okay, twenty two. <laughs> I love you guys. Leave a five-star review. <laughs> uh, like, subscribe. Um, yeah. And until next time, to all of you, like, woodsy fear and bitches. Oh, my God. All of you deep woods bitches. Blessed be bitches. Blessed be you deep woods bitches. Goodbye. Bye now. talked on here about how much I love Capricorns and how all of my celebrity crushes are Capricorns and Shannon, my like listener crush is a Capricorn. Um, and I have recently fallen in love with Rami Malek. Right. And I was like, yes, I saw his birthday was in May. And I was like, it's not a Capricorn. And then I found out he's a Taurus with a Virgo moon. <laughs>